0: Good to see you everyone. Uh, I think I came here last time last spring, and so it's good to see familiar faces. Uh, let's uh, pray all together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you for this church. And Father, I pray as we read from your word, may you speak through your words in our hearts, and may we listen in humility, and may your words convict us. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So today's text is from Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. So let me read from Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. So let me start off with asking a question, and I encourage the children to answer. Why? Did the people in the Old Testament sacrifice animals. Why did the people in the Old Testament sacrifice animals? No answer. Okay. Well, animals were sacrificed because of sin. Hebrews 9:22 says. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And we see animal sacrifice since the beginning of Genesis because of our father and mother, Adam and Eve, because they have sinned. And imagine you are Adam and Eve, and as soon as your eyes are opened, you're in a world without death, without suffering without sickness. There's peace. There's joy. But then they have sinned. They have rebelled against God, and you get to witness the very first death just to cover their, um, just to cover their nakedness. When they sinned, they hid in the bushes. They covered themselves with leaves. And when, as they were uh, getting kicked out of Eden... The skin of animal covered their nakedness. And since then, how many animals were sacrificed? Countless. So what are the consequences of sin? Because of Adam and Eve's sin, what are the consequences? Most obvious, we see suffering, we see pain. The nature that was supposed to be under the dominion of Adam, the nature that brought, fruit, uh, brought forth fruit for Adam and Eve to eat, to be nourished, to enjoy, now because of the curse, they have to toil and work hard to get, to, to get that little food. Eve bears children in pain. The nature that worked for them now is working against Adam and Eve. But those are secondary consequences. The primary consequence that we see is death. God hates sin, and God's anger and judgment awaits for all sinners. And all the sinners will taste the anger of God in eternity. And so we see the separation. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were kicked out of Eden, and they could not enter Garden of Eden. And likewise... When Moses and the Israelites, when they wandered in, uh, wandered in wilderness, wandered, that's the right word, right? When they wandered in the wilderness, God gave them instruction to build tabernacle, and similarly with Solomon time, the temple, and they had this building, and in their room, or we call it most holy place or holy of holies, that was the dwelling place of God, the presence of God, and it was separated with a thick veil from God's presence from the people. And in, that, in those temples, in those temples, the high priest was able to enter once a year with a, after a rigorous cleansing ceremony, and they would enter with fear of God that, that they might be struck dead. And from the moment when Adam and Eve were kicked out. And you see throughout the Old Testament, through the patriarchs, through the kings and the prophets, from the moment they were kicked out, they all longed and hoped for one person, the ultimate rescuer, the high priest, the great high priest, the ultimate prophet, the great king, who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And all these forefathers in faith knew that there was going to be a Savior who would rescue them from God's anger, from His eternal punishment. So while all of them waited for the Savior to come, they sacrificed all these animals. Now the question is, does killing, sacrificing animals cleanse the sins of the people? Does the blood of animal actually take away the sins of the people? No. In Hebrews ten, four it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In Hebrews ten, before verse nineteen, it talks to us about the death, the deaths of animals actually never cleanses sin. And the countless of deaths of animals reminds us year by year the sins of the people. They remind us our sins daily. And so, how did Jesus rescue us? How did he save us? He rescued us by becoming the ultimate, the real sacrificial lamb. And instead of us receiving the penalty of sin instead of us being under the judgment of God, Jesus took the penalty. And so like John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, what did he say for the first time? Lo and behold, The the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he became the sacrifice by dying on the cross. And through Jesus, the separation is lifted. And that's how we can enter the, with confidence the holy of holies. The veil that separated the presence of God from the people, the veil during his crucifixion tore from top to bottom. And that's why Hebrews says he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Christ died for our sins once and for all. He is the ultimate sacrifice and he is the high priest who intercedes for us. The Old Testament people, they didn't have the full scripture, right? And even though they didn't have the full scripture that we have today, they knew that God would send a savior and that's because God promised them. They held on to that promise. They only saw a distant figure and even though it was distant, because it was promise of God, they had hope. Now, let's look at this hope from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, the psalmist knows that the sin of man is too great to bear. It says in verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So the smallest sin is enough for us to be under the judgment of God. But also the psalmist knows something. He says in verse 5, In his word do I hope. And how does he know that the word gives him hope? In verse 7, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so, even the psalmist lived long before Jesus came and he died for our sins. He had this uh, great hope in God that he is a redeemer. But now we have the full picture, right? We have the knowledge. We have this treasure, the scripture and the cloud of witnesses testifying to us what Christ has done. And we know through God's revealed word that Christ has died for our sins and that he rose again from the dead in victory and that we are freed from the bondage of sin and death. And that is the hope of the gospel. Is this good news in any way complicated? No. This message of the gospel doesn't require a scholar to interpret for us. It doesn't require a scholar to understand. It is a simple message. It's a simple message of hope. It's a simple confession of faith. It's just a simple message of hope. Now, like I asked, is this message too simple? Is the gospel too simple for you? When I was summarizing the hope of the gospel, maybe some of you sat there thinking, I know it already. Maybe some of you were a little bored. I mean, many of us grew up listening who Jesus is, what he has done. I assume many of us sat in Sunday school We come to church. Maybe your parents taught you the gospel message since since you were young. And so you might be thinking, okay, I know this already. Can we please move on to the good stuff? And that, brothers and sisters, is the dullness of our hearts. We have heard it many times. And since we are used to it, we want to hear something innovative, something different Something new. And of course, you might be thinking, no, well, that's not me. My heart is not dull. And we don't, know, we don't want to admit it, but there are many of us who think that way, not me. But our attitude shows that we have grown dull to listening to the simple message of the gospel. A better question is, are you even aware that you are growing dull in your heart? You might not even be aware of it. And that is how deceptive we are to ourselves. Our hearts are deceptive. Okay, maybe there is a little dullness, but that's not my fault. And where, whenever we do find ourselves, uh, ourselves grow dull, maybe we are tempted to blame others. Maybe it's the pastor. Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's, maybe it's the busyness of life. Maybe it's just others around us. Or is it the fault of our own sins? Our heart is deceptive. We may find faults here and there, but at the end of the day, we are accountable for our own sins. And so we have to remember that we need Christ every single day. And because we have forgotten how sick and disgusting our own sins are, we become tired of celebrating God's faithfulness It's work of redemption. And sin, we have to remember that it's not an archaic, poetic word. We make the word sin into some kind of distant, impersonal force of nature. But sin is the very corruption that eats us away into internal damnation, worthy of God's eternal judgment. And when we forget how disgusting and deadly the sin is, that is when the good news, the gospel, becomes tiresome. It becomes boring. Maybe it even uh, offends us. Then we change the gospel into something that is unrecognizable. There is no such thing as graduating from the gospel. And we are tempted to move away from the simplicity of the gospel by saying, now let's move into a deeper theological topics. Doctrine this, doctrine that. Oh, that's a good, deep theological thing that every much a Christian needs. And maybe that is true so for some of us who used to be in a uh, some kind of church with shallow gospel message. And what I, what I mean by shallow gospel, I'm talking about who preach a partial gospel message. And so there are churches that Talks about love, but they don't talk. They don't preach sin. They talk about grace, but they don't preach about God's anger against sinners. They talk about peace, but they don't preach about the sword that the gospel brings. And by reacting against those gospels, we can react falsely by saying sophisticated theology is always better. And of course, theology is good, and we have to study. word of God. We have to grow in our knowledge of the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, of our salvation. But at the end of the day, if the theology, if your theology is not grounded in the simple message of the gospel, what good is it? And so we have to know that God made the gospel simple and easy for all to understand. And so let's not make mockery of the gospel because of its simplicity. We need the gospel every single day and taste the mercy and loving kindness of God every morning, every evening. And only when we understand our weakness and our frailty, then can we enter the holy place in confidence, sincere heart, and assurance. Where there's no, there's no gospel, where there's no sin, and where there's no sin, there's no gospel. Now, how can we enter the holy place with confidence, with sincere heart, with assurance? Nothing. There's nothing we can do. And Isaiah 64, uh, verse 6, it makes it pretty clear. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And maybe when I say these words, work best salvation, maybe some of you are thinking of Uh, Roman Catholics, in their official doctrine that says, you are saved by faith and works. So you do the seven sacraments. You do the penance. Maybe it's other forms of Christianity that that you're thinking of who say, when you break God's law, you will lose salvation. But guess what? It's always easy to point fingers at some kind of other distant Christian denominations, or whatever it is, it's always easy to point fingers. But before we point fingers, we always have to examine our hearts and listen to what our heart is whispering. What, cre- what creates confidence in you? Is it the fact that, well, I pray every day. I read my Bible every day. I attend Sundays. I attend all the Bible studies. And maybe those things do give confidence in you. The fact that you are accomplishing something or maybe you have deep knowledge of the Scripture and this, this wide knowledge of theology while your wife and children are neglected. And just the fact that you tell yourself, I'm Reformed, gives you some kind of comfort. Maybe you have a little bit more insight and say, yes, I do not pray enough. I do not read Scripture enough. And while you recognize that about yourself, You refuse to come to Christ in repentance and seek Him. And all these things are pride, a false confidence, a false humility. And how can we boast about deep theological knowledge knowledge when Satan himself knows so much more than us? And how can we boast about those little works when our hearts constantly and endlessly produce idols? And so whenever I think of Uh, performing our performance to get a better seat in heaven. It reminds me of this comic strip um, from many years ago from uh, my childhood of this guy pulling on his own hair to save himself from drowning. You can pull on your hair all day you want, but it's just laughable. A dead man cannot make himself to rise, and that is how we are. Or I should say, that is how we were. That's how we were before God saved us. And so we constantly overestimate ourselves and forget how deadly and deceptive sin is. And so let me ask you again, how can we enter the holy place with confidence, with assurance, and with sincere faith? It is by the confession that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. Nothing we, do, nothing we do, nothing we say, but by the simple faith and confession that Jesus died for our sins. Let me read um, a part of Psalm 38. Because there are different ways we respond to the word sin. From verse 3 it says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. Now, after reading this, there are, like I said, different ways we react to this particular psalm. Maybe some... Of us, it doesn't affect us at all. All right? Great Psalm. What's next? Maybe you're thinking, okay, that's a bit exaggerated. No health in my bones because of my sin, my wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. And that's the dullness that I was talking about. We do not see sin in our hearts as danger and tragedy, and David here has a proper response to his own sin just how it burdens him. And then there is a a different response we have as we read the psalm, and those are the people who actually feel very closely to what David is talking about. You feel this burden, this pain, the anguish of sin. And that's the other danger we can actually fall into. Now, I did talk about that we should be aware of the danger of sin, right? But this response can be a danger when you do see your sin and when you're burdened by your own sin and you're dwelling in that state of devastation that shows that the burden of sin is greater than the forgiveness of Christ. So don't we serve a God who is faithful? Don't we worship a God who has sent His only Son, clothed in flesh, to sympathize with us? Has not Christ won victory over sin and death? But when the burden of sin is greater than the forgiveness of God, that itself is idolatry. And so, let's learn from David how he responds to his sin. Psalm 32 says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. In verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. Now, this is the same David who was weighed down by sin, was burdened by sin. He's felt this, every, this anguish, the every ounce of sin in his body. But at the same time, he has hope in God's loving kindness. He perfectly knows how destructive sin is, but at the same time, he knows that he can be forgiven in God. He finds comforting, comfort in God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, I want, I want to make my um, last quick point um, from verse uh, verses uh, twenty four and twenty five And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more you see the day drawing near. And so we talked about this vertical relationship. Our confession of hope to God, we know our sins, and we know we can cling on to Christ, right? right? But we cannot forget the horizontal relationship. I mean, it's not just in the West, but everywhere, honestly. We cultivated the culture of individualism, where we go to church. Okay, I've listened to the sermon. Now I'm out. Right? There are many of us who don't see the need of a church. And it has particularly proven after COVID. I see also many online comments, or at least I should say I used to because... I used to spend too much time on social media, but there you see a lot of comments like, I don't need a church. It's just me and God. I am the bride of Christ. But guess what? Christ came for the church. The church is his bride. Jesus doesn't have many brides. He has the church as his bride, and forsaking the church means you're forsaking the means of the gospel, the body of Christ. It is the command of God for us to do the life together as a church. First Corinthians 12 talks about the body being of many members. First John 1:17 talks about walking in light means having fellowship with one another, and Matthew, where there are two or three is gathered, he is an, an amongst them and even Jesus being the great shepherd and us being the sheep, teaches about church. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Hebrews commands us not to forsake assembling together. And so we have to throw away the thought that just sitting under the preaching somehow transforms us. Part of growing in our holiness, part of growing in the fear of God, part of growing in our love for God, Loving our wife, submitting to our husbands, loving and disciplining your children, learning about our own sins, all these things you learn by doing life together as a church. Transformation doesn't magically happen. And so we also we have to throw away the beliefs that, um, that you don't need anyone to meddle with your private life. Yeah. It's easy to think that way when you consider the faith to be a religion of individualism. The Christian faith is not individualism. It's not about yourself. It's about Christ and His church. Married couples always tell me um, when they get married, this lovey-dovey phase, and they spend a lot of time together, and you really get to see all kinds of sides of your spouse just f- by the fact that you spend a lot of time together, right? Um, and, I mean, I see that with um, as I'm teaching high school students. And high school students, they spend a lot of time together from morning to afternoon. And if they play sports or other activities, they spend even more time together. And so whether you're friends or not, conflicts happen. And I see students walk in, and they don't even have to, even have to tell me anything just by their face expression and their body posture. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, something happened. And just the fact that I spend a lot of time with them, they get to see my ugly side as a teacher. But that's life. Doing life together, doing gospel together, doesn't mean that it's going to be all rosy flowers and cotton candy. And even think about like a slice of life of a family. You have a little child of yours uh, wiping away booger on the couch, and a child, another child, spilling orange juice all over the dining table. While the toddler is doing this in the middle of a living room, you know what I mean. And the mother's yelling from the kitchen for someone to set up the kitchen table, and the dad is out in the backyard trying to take care of a um, dead raccoon or something, right? I mean, that's just a slice of life you, right, you have uh, right there. You get to, when, As you spend time, all kinds of things happen and conflicts naturally occur. You rub shoulders with people. You'll be disappointed at times. You will get hurt. You will find encouragement and sometimes you don't even know you needed an encouragement until you hear one. People will admonish you, exhort you, and rebuke you. And before me moving to... Um, to Indiana, I was in this wonderful bubble of Christian college life, and when I moved to Indiana, I learned how disconnected I was from children, from youth, from elderly. When people exhorted me and rebuked me, it came with a sting, but it relieved me. It actually comforted me. And just as anybody is, I'm a sinner, and I needed people to tell me with honesty and with, in love about my weakness, about my failures, about my sins, and encouragement. And the church is, an essential, uh, is essential when it comes to our faith. So just remember the new commandment that Jesus gave on the night when he was betrayed. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. And so this holding fast to the confession of hope. Just to quickly, briefly summarize. Be sensitive to your sin so that you don't grow dull to the simple message of the gospel. And be aware and anticipate how sin will tempt and destroy you. And unless we are aware of our sins, we don't realize how much in need we are of a Savior. And number two, remember that we do have a Savior who died for our sins, and He has won the victory and freed us from the bondage of sin. And because we know how helpless we are, that's all the more reason we can come to God in confidence, confidence and assurance. And number three, do not forsake gathering together as a church. We are here as a church to love one another, to mourn for those who mourn, to be joyful with those who celebrate success in their life instead of bitterness and jealousy, to admonish one another, to exhort one another, another to rebuke when a brother dwells in sin. That is the church family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please teach us what it means to hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. Father, I pray that we are deceived all the time because of our sins and we forget all the time how destructive our sin is. So, Father, please forgive our unawareness that we constantly stray away from you. Father, teach us and convict us of our sin. And, Father, let us find comfort in the sacrifice of Your Son. Let us find comfort in the work of salvation that You have done. Please, Lord, be our strength. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment as we hold fast to the confession as a church to glorify You and to worship You. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.